It's a real privilege to share God's word with you this morning. I noticed that there's a clock up there, Matt. Most of the churches I go to now have calendars up there now. So, um, it's a joy to share God's word with you. If you'd like to open your Bibles, tablets, phones, or papyrus scrolls, that would be fine. To the book of Nehemiah. And if you're not sure where it is, there is an index probably somewhere. It becomes before uh, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, and so on. Nehemiah chapter 1. Last Sunday, Dave Kay finished off a series of Life Together when he shared of the blessings that we can receive and give when we are in team. And this morning, it's uh, my privilege to start a new series uh, of Prayers of the Bible and to look at some of those wonderful prayers that are recorded for us, kept for us by God in Scripture. And um, what we'll see is that some of these prayers are what we might call pattern or model prayers. They're there to help us in our prayer life, They're to give us a greater prayer vocabulary sometimes because our prayer vocabulary can become stale and samey. They're there for those times when we haven't got much idea what to say to God. But also there's power in reading God's word back to him, isn't there? You're with me? You haven't dropped off yet? I've only just started. There's power in reading God's word back to him because it gives us security that we're not wondering what God's will is because there it is for us. We're in the midst of God's word and his will. So we have that security. When the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray, he gave them the Lord's Prayer, the most recognized model or pattern prayer. Not that our prayer should always be as formal, Prayer is not what we do with our eyes closed and our hands together, but in that moment-by-moment walk with Jesus. However, formal prayer has its place. It not only enhances our prayer life, but I believe it enhances the prayer life of the church too. So what we'll look at this morning is a prayer, one of my favorite prayers in the Old Testament, there are many of them, that comes from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, if you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, I haven't got it already. I'm just going to read chapter 1. If you'd like to read chapter 2 later on today as part of your devotions, because I know you all do them, that you'll be able to see what happens after the bit that I'm going to cover this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, whilst I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said... Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But 
if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, for I was cupbearer to the king. The Lord bless his word to us. We've got a lot to get through, so if you're really dying for a cup of coffee, I'd get one there. Bit of backstory before we go into the text itself. If you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever, don't put it away. I love people to engage with the text as well as my message. What I've got to say hopefully comes from God somewhere, but engage with the text. It's important that we read God's Word together. God's people checkered history of 500 years when things have not been going right for God's people, both in the northern uh, city and, and of Samaria and and Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Things have not gone well. God's people have suffered and eventually been taken into captivity. All of Judah taken into captivity in Babylon. Everything that was recognizable as Judah had been taken into Babylon and what was left was destroyed by the Babylonian army. Seventy years God's people would spend in exile and Ezra, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah picks up this situation when Cyrus the Great eventually allows some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem in the time of Ezra to rebuild the temple and to rediscover the word of God and then later under Artaxerxes who sends we'll see others back to Jerusalem. In the midst of this we have God's man too, a man called Nehemiah, an ordinary man, one of the Jews taken into exile who though ordinary rose to a position of, uh, of importance in the court of King Artaxerxes, a position of influence. He was the cupbearer to the king. Persia once was the greatest empire at the time, and yet despite his privileged position, Nehemiah, his heart was elsewhere. His heart was on a little city in Judah called Jerusalem. We saw in our text, verse 2, that when travelers from Jerusalem returned to Susa, where Nehemiah was, he asked them, he inquired of them what the situation was in Jerusalem, and the news was bad. You can see it for yourself. The walls are broken down. The people there are in disgrace. Nehemiah receives bad news. And what does Nehemiah do when he receives this bad news? He sits down. I was going to quickly go over that part and get on to something else this morning, but at the end of the week, God challenged me to cover it. Bad news can devastate you, can't it? Particularly when it comes about the people you care for and love. But as believers, what we can realize is, is that we can allow it to devastate us. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we need to take it to a God who understands so that he can transform that devastation into a concentration of our mind and heart on what really matters in life. I wouldn't say that's a reason for going through such times, but it certainly helps to transform the feelings that go with it. 
And so Nehemiah sat down. That was his first action. I don't know about you, but it's very easy to react to bad news. Instantly want to do something about it, to be in that situation, to go to those people, to do something about it. If you're a man, we're wired that way. We love to do something about it. But Nehemiah resisted that temptation to react. Instead, he sat down in order that he could eventually respond. And there's a big difference between the two things. It's a lesson we need to learn. Don't react to things. Not knee-jerk reaction. Sit down. Take time with God so that you can respond to it eventually. Or sometimes it's for someone else to respond to it. And you don't have to anyway. Prayer, as we're going to see with Nehemiah, was as vital and as essential as breathing. Who knows the Guinness Book of Records for holding their breath? Any, any ideas? Longest holding of their breath? 24 minutes and 37 seconds. And after about 24 seconds, I'd have been on the ground. That's me done. 24 minutes and 37 seconds by one of these free divers, Croatian lady. The problem is when you hold your breath is that your O2 levels disappear and your CO2 levels rise and eventually you lose consciousness. I wonder how desperate we are to pray. Because if you can't breathe, your whole body knows about it. It shuts down very quickly. If only our spiritual lives had the same effect, maybe we'd pray more fervently, if not more often. So, at least nine times in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays. Often it's an arrow prayer. That's fine. They're good too. But on this occasion, he comes to us with a wonderful prayer. And let's have a quick look at the text of that prayer. He says, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, we need to note that prayer recorded here is a result of Nehemiah's time sitting spent in prayer. It's not just an off-the-cuff prayer. He comes out of this time with God, talking about things, weeping about things, understanding things. It brings him clarity and understanding that he needed in order to act at some point in the situation. And Nehemiah begins his prayer with adoration. Adoration is so important. If Nehemiah's faith, John White says, was based on his knowledge of what God is like, then it was made perfect by his knowledge of what God had promised. Adoration tells us about God's character, doesn't it? And surely when we, we talk about God's character and his greatness and his power and his awesomeness first, it means that whatever we're going to eventually bring to him as our supplication, as our need, is smaller because our God is so great. Amen? It means that that great thing that floors us, that causes us to sit down and weep, that devastates us initially, seems smaller somehow when we bring it into the hands of a loving and great God. Then he goes on to talk about a God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Anyone here read Pilgrim's Progress? Now, if you've never read it, I'd get a, a modern English version. The old one's a bit tough to get through. It's a bit like reading the authorized version on crack. So 
it's a difficult one. But as you read the story of, of, of Christian going on this pilgrim, he eventually goes to a place where him and his friend, hopeful, become desperate. They become anxious and afraid, and life seems to have taken away all their joy. And they find themselves in what's called the Doubting Castle, where there's a great giant called Despair. And he puts them into uh, a prison where he beats them regularly. And they are desperate, and they, they're just beyond all hope, it seems, to them. And then suddenly, whilst he's in that prison, Christian says, What a fool I have been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could just as well walk free. For I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And he takes the key of the promises of God and he unlocks every door and he and Hopeful walk free and continue their journey. It's just a fascinating insight into those things that God has said that many of us know, don't we? If you're not hearing anything this morning, you didn't know. But God's not particularly bothered about what we know, but he is very interested in what we do with what we know. And so you see, Christian and Hopeful had forgotten for a moment, for a time, that God had promised so much to them. We can do that too. When stuff comes that's so bad, you start to think, where's God in this? Why is this happening? But eventually we can understand the promises of God are true today as they were when they were first given. And what we see with Nehemiah was he never doubted that his great and awesome God could do what he needed to do but also that his covenant-keeping, loving God would do what he said he would do. And that's important for us to hold on to. But then his prayer continues into confession. He begins with adoration, bigging up, if you like, his God, reminding himself of the great and awesome God that he worships. But then he realizes he needs to clear the decks so that there's no ulterior motive in his prayers, that there's no barrier to reaching God's heart in his prayers. And that's why confession is so important, isn't it? And confession comes before repentance because confession says to God, you are right and I am wrong. And sometimes repentance is hard or meaningless if you never admit that we're wrong in the first place and that God is right. And so he says, I confess the sins that we Israelites have committed against you. Notice, Nehemiah includes himself because he's a sinner, isn't he? And we've got a whole room full of them here this morning. So as we pray, we're praying in good company, aren't we? The company of sinners saved by sovereign grace, but sinners nonetheless. And that's what we admit before God, and we ask him to forgive us our sins, the smallest to the greatest, because there's no small sin, because there's no small God to sin against. And when we confess our sin, it clears the way takes away ulterior motives. It clarifies our words before God and our heart before him, allowing him to do that work in us because the first person to be affected by our prayers is always us who pray. Well before anyone else we're praying for is affected. And Nehemiah knew this. And he pleaded before God, recognizing, if you look at the text, that in the Hebrew he uses most of the words in the Hebrew for sin. He doesn't just minimize it. He doesn't justify it. He puts it in the language that they had failed God morally and spiritually and legally. They had broken every part of the covenant and didn't deserve his nod in their direction, let alone his covenant love. And yet he pleaded for God's covenant love to be there for his people. When we begin our prayers of adoration, 
God is greater than our need. When we go on to confession, that our sin clears away the rubbish from our lives, as Nehemiah would have to do when he gets to Jerusalem and clear the rubble away before he can rebuild the walls. But then at the end, in verse 11, he gets finally to supplication. He actually asks for something that he really wanted. This is why we're calling it Nehemiah praying for success. But as we'll see, the success that Nehemiah was praying for had nothing to do with his own well-being and benefit. It had all to do with restoring God's honor and restoring his people. And that would be good for us to be aware of, wouldn't it, as believers today? In our own nation, let alone across the world, God's honor and name are being rubbished, are being assaulted. And we can't allow that to continue. We need to uphold the honor of God in our prayer life as well as the prayers of, and, the, and the honor of his people. So he begins with adoration, moves on to confession, comes to this supplication. What does he ask for? He simply asks for God to grant him success in what he's about to do. He wants favor in the presence of the king he needs to go and stand in the presence of. I suggest you go on to read chapter 2. As I say later on, you'll see what eventually comes out of this. But eventually, Nehemiah has to go into the presence of King Artaxerxes, which in itself could mean instant death. He could have stayed in his privileged position. He was safe and secure in, in, in uh, Susa with, in Persia. He'd been there a long time. Everything was going fine for him. There was no reason for him to leave that situation other than he honored his God and loved his people. And he was a man on the cusp of a great adventure to go with God and to bless God's people. And I hope that's what we're on doesn't matter how mundane our life might appear to us. Surely we are on the cusp every day of a new adventure with God to honor his name and bless his people. And I do pray that we are a people that pray as much for God's people as we pray for our own needs. Otherwise, we have the laundry list, don't we? You know, and sometimes in house group, you have a prayer time. It's like being the doctor's surgery, isn't it? We're just sharing our ailments and our needs. Somewhere along the line, we have to break through and bring this great and awesome God into the midst of our prayer life. When he eventually goes to Artaxerxes, a great personal risk, and tells him what he wants to do, what he feels God would have him do, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild what the enemy had torn down. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. When God has something planned for you, you can rely on that plan being a success. Not because of you or me, but because of our God. And the final word for those that really required me to have one, for old time's sake. Prayer begins with God. He doesn't call us to decide on a battle strategy and then to ask for his help in carrying out our plans. Rather, we are to ask him what his plans are. To do so, we are to wait on God so that he can reveal his heart to us. Plans conceived by God are sure to succeed. I hope and pray that from today onwards, we will 
each of us be on the cusp of a great adventure with our God for his glory and for the blessings of his people. Thank you for listening.